Let me uh, take us to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and then skipping over to chapter 9, verses through, 2 through 7. These are very familiar at this time of year. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then over to chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Let's seek the Lord's help in this time. Father, anytime we open your word, we are utterly dependent on your spirit to uh, open our eyes and open our hearts to, to understand it and for it to be applied to us. And so we're asking for that to happen right now, that you, you would illuminate this truth to us so that it brings about uh, the desired effect in our lives. God, we want to be people who trust in you. We want to be people who rest on your word. We want to be people who are transformed by it. We want to be people who, as a collective, are witnesses to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in this building, but radiating out from this building in our lives. So, Lord, may this word uh, help us to that end, that we may put Christ on display. That's our aim, Father. Uh, we need help because we are sometimes dull of hearing, and I need help because uh, oftentimes I'm fumbling in my words. But, Lord, you can make sense of all of this to us, and we'll trust you to do that even now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was about 20 years ago, it was shortly after buying the, the three-bedroom home that we live in now, we wanted to add an extra room so each of our three kids could have their own space. Hired a contractor to make a room out of the finished, already finished area in the basement. Now, technically, that's not a bedroom. It is what is called a non-conforming room. And it's called that because there is no egress window. You know what I'm talking about? Fire marshals like egress windows. In fact, there's no window at all. And when the door is closed, it's absolutely pitch black. Now, all of our kids have used that room. One didn't mind it too much, but two, well, two of them, you might say, did not contribute to their well-being. And I can't say it was seasonal affective disorder, 
but the lack of significant sunlight, uh, let's just say, did not help their moods. Um, and you certainly don't want to exacerbate that in the lives of teenagers, just saying. But you get it, you know? Uh, the, the absence of light does something, right? Now, even outside at night when it's, when it's dark, it's, we know this, it's not absolutely dark. You can easily walk around this city because of the lights. There's so much light emitted even at the night. And if, even if you happen to be away from the city, if it's a, a clear night and the stars are out and you can see the moon, you can, you can see enough to navigate around. But I think we all know this, that, that absolute physical darkness, that is very, very disconcerting. And if you've experienced it, it's not pleasant at all. And I can imagine that extended periods of time would probably be harmful even to your health, your physical health. Now, as physically, potentially harmful as physical darkness may be, spiritual darkness is horribly destructive. And without a remedy, it leads to an eternal darkness from which there is no escape. So at Advent, what we, what we get to do this time of year is celebrate the fact that Christ, our light, has come. And so we're looking at the, the prophet Isaiah this morning who predicted that light. I want to give a little background on, on the prophet Isaiah since we're kind of jumping into uh, you know, a few chapters in here. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, we, we know that the prophet ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. In Isaiah 6, we find that he was called to that prophetic ministry at the end of, of Uzziah's reign. So we can say that Isaiah wrote sometime between 742, um, sometime to no later than 687 BC. Now we looked at chapter 7. Uh, we started with a verse in chapter 7, and I'll explain what's happening there. The prophet was sent to Ahaz, who was, who was king of Judah at the time. And according to 2 Kings 16, he was a king that did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He was a wicked king. He had set up altars for Baal worship. He even went so far as to sacrifice his own sons in a burnt offering to this false god. Now, during that time, there was a lot of political maneuvering. The situation in, in chapter 7 is Rezin. This is the king of Syria at the time. He had allied himself with, with Pekah, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So at this time, the, the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Israel had been divided, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Now, Israel in the north, with their capital being Samaria, they had allied themselves with with Syria. And they had determined to make war against Judah, against, against Ahaz, because Ahaz re refused to join their alliance. So that's the situation. And in a battle, it was horrible. Judah lost some 120,000 soldiers, and there was 200,000 women and children who were taken captive. But they were eventually returned when the prophet Obed intervened on behalf of Judah. And you can find that in first, or sorry, 2 Chronicles 28. So that's the setting. Now what happened is the Lord sent Ahaz 
He sent him Isaiah to bring a sign. He wanted to assure the king that the plans of, of the northern kingdom of Israel and their, their uh, situation with Syria, that they would not ultimately succeed and take Jerusalem. Jerusalem would ultimately be spared. And so, as a result of that, Ahaz, King Ahaz, was given a sign from the Lord. And this is where 7.14 comes in. Chapter 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this passage is challenging because we, we think it's all about Jesus, but there was a near-term fulfillment of this prophecy in chapter 8, verse 34. The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The near-term fulfillment of that is that the prophetess would bear Isaiah a son. And before he could even speak, Assyria another nation, would plunder both Syria and Israel, then removing the threat. But understand that that wasn't the only fulfillment of that prophecy. That same word would point to a greater fulfillment in the very incarnation of the Son of God, the promise of a Messiah for the ultimate deliverance of not just Judah and Jerusalem, but the whole people of God. That prophetic word, was to give hope, to give eternal hope for people in every age following that time, people who were, and this is my first heading, blinded by darkness. They were blinded by darkness. You can see this in, in um, chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness. And I say blinded by darkness. Now, every... Uh, Every 18 months, somewhere on the planet, there's a total eclipse of the sun that occurs. It's a very rare thing because any one place on the earth will only see it every 360 years. But because they're so rare, when it does happen, they're fascinating to see. And experts will tell you that you're not supposed to look at this thing with the naked eye. You can be physically blinded by the light. We understand that light, physical light, can blind you in its intensity. But spiritually, this may be counterintuitive. Spiritually, people can and are blinded by darkness, spiritual darkness. Verse 2, these are the people who walked in darkness. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Now, in a physical sense, the, the nation of Judah under that wicked king Ahaz, they felt that darkness. You can see that in verses 4 and 5, and, and it's described there, the yoke of the oppressor's burden. Now understand what would happen in that time. In the ancient world, a, a conquering nation would impose a tribute on the defeated nation. The treasuries would be, would be uh, the treasuries of the one who was vanquished would, would be looted. That, that, conquering nation would, would take anything of value. Under Ahaz, in fact, it happened that the temple in Jerusalem was stripped of everything valuable. And often in, in those times, a punitive tax would be imposed on any citizens remaining so that it would feel like you, you can't even, you can barely survive because you've got to pay the tax. He talks about the rod. 
the rod of the oppressor, implying this sort of this stranglehold control. Verse 5, he talks about the boot of trampling warrior, pointing back to the fact of 120,000 soldiers being lost, that garment rolled in blood, indicating this massive loss of life. It was darkness, darkness for Judah. It was a physical darkness. But understand, that that physical darkness that Judah and Jerusalem experienced, that physical oppression was there because of a spiritual darkness. See, they had turned away from the Lord. They had turned to idols, and they brought upon themselves the due consequences of their actions. I'll take you back to, to Deuteronomy, where, where the Lord told the people of Israel through the prophet Moses. Here's what's required of a king. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. That's what was required of the king. Ahaz did all kinds of things, but clearly he did not do anything like that. And, and back in Deuteronomy, the Lord warned. The Lord warned of the consequences. He told them in Deuteronomy 25, 15 through 68. It's a lengthy section. But these include miscarriages, diseases, confusion, frustration, economic disaster, defeat by enemies and being oppressed by them. Ahaz and Judah turned to Baal worship. And they brought upon themselves the due consequences that were laid out for them in the law. Their physical darkness had been caused by that spiritual, that prior spiritual darkness. So they were very well of that physical darkness, but they were woefully oblivious to the spiritual cause. They were blinded to the truth by the very darkness that they embraced. They were blinded by darkness. Now, it's not hard to see how this probably describes our world today. I think it describes almost every generation at some place on the earth ever since sin entered the world. Now, it doesn't always seem to be the case, but spiritual darkness, denying God, denying his existence, denying God's authority, denying his word, that is ultimately self-destructive. It is self-destructive personally in our lives, but it is self-destructive for societies. And we can see this in our own time. When we deny, and I say we, not you, but we in the West, we in this part of the world, we in the, the, the cultural, uh, essentially the cultural pinnacle of, of those on this planet, we belong to that group. We, when we deny God and his law, we make up our own laws. And somehow we feel morally justified in doing 
what we do. And we can see that in the elimination of those little ones, babies that are conceived inconveniently. When we deny God and his law, we remove the boundaries of sexual intimacy. And it's no wonder that sexual abuse and deviancy are rampant. When we deny God and his laws, we, we ignore his design for humanity. And I'm touching on these things because these are cultural hot points. These are the things that we're constantly faced with. As believers in Jesus, we're constantly feeling the barrage of pressure in these areas. The government isn't inducing us to embezzle money. The government isn't inducing us to murder our neighbors. But the government is inducing us to embrace the killing of the unborn. The government is inducing us to embrace the self-worship. We ignore God's design for humanity. And, and let me just say this. If you universalize the LGBTQ alphabet agenda, if, if you universalize that, think about this, how, how destructive it is, right? If you universalize same-sex coupling, transgenderism, you ultimately destroy God's design for the family. And you, you in fact, drastically reduce the ability of society to even reproduce. I read this somewhere. Someone quipped, if you put 20 men and 20 women on an island, right, in 150 years, you'll have a thriving society. But if you put 20 men and 20 transgender women on the island, in 150 years, you'll have the bones of 40 men. That's it. Now, I know that's in the extreme. But it's destructive. The very thing that's embraced as a freedom collapses the very society that God said to make. Go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Just one example. When we deny God and his law, we, we decriminalize, sorry, when we deny God and his law, we criminalize words and we decriminalize actions. And we're surprised. The economic disasters, we can see this facing many of our cities and so even at the, 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 the levels of authority and government, and I'm not trying to bash on government, but we see that this is just this trajectory. When we deny God and his laws, and this especially when it happens among those who govern us, they become a law unto themselves. And they wield their power not to serve the people, but for selfish gain. Just some examples. We can see this. Embracing, denying God and his laws and embracing that spiritual darkness is destructive. In John 3, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light or does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. When people deny God and his law, ultimately they become intoxicated by darkness. We were talking about this at Men's Coffee last Friday. Sin begets evil. Sin begets sin. Evil begets evil. Evil has this kind of cascading effect. When it's given free reign, it increases and eventually overtakes. Darkness, spiritual darkness, appeals to base, corrupted appetites. Greed, lust, and pride, and left to our own devices. Left to our own devices, we all 
would follow that path to an eternal darkness for which there is no remedy. I spent that time talking about people walking in darkness. It was a physical darkness for Judah under Ahaz. But in our time, it is a spiritual darkness. But God has a remedy. He has a remedy for his people and all who would look to him in faith. This is my second heading, simply restored by light. Restored by light. Now in the office area of our, our building here, we are in, presently engaged in a battle of wits with an evil intruder. A few weeks ago, a mouse ran from the extra office under the door, under the mini fridge. A week and a half ago, I opened the bottom doors of my credenza and a mouse jumped out and then ran again under the credenza. And just on Friday, I opened my office door and another, probably the same guy, don't know, ran out from underneath and scurried behind something. And even uh, in the extra office, Josh had stored some of the, the gifts that were going to be given to our staff last night at the party. And the mouse found a way to chew some of that stuff up and make a mess. Those little evil creatures, they do their dastardly deeds in the dark. They leave a tiny little trail of these little droppings, chewing on things that are not meant for them. But you know, when you turn on the light, they run away. They run away. The remedy for the evil mouse and his destructive acts is light and a sticky trap with peanut butter bait. But light causes them to flee. Now, we haven't won the battle yet. I checked the trap this morning. I don't have him yet. But I say all that because when light comes in, evil flees. It has to. Now, we get it that, that light and dark are these common metaphors, right? Light and dark, common metaphors for good and evil. So light is the remedy to both evil and ultimately its horrific effects. We're told here in this beautiful prophetic announcement, the ones walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those who are aware, for those who are longing, walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On them, light has shone. Now, in the context of Ahaz, as a remedy to the oppression, the, the promised light will restore Judah, will protect Jerusalem ultimately, resulting in great joy. Now, in verse 3 of our text, in, in the prophetic perfect voice, speaking about the future, as a present reality, we're told the Lord has multiplied the nation. That is to say, he's made her fruitful again, growing, thriving families. They're experiencing the economic benefit like, like an abundant harvest. They're enjoying victory in battles, and, and they get to enjoy the plunder of war. And, and, and recounting uh, the, the victory from the past and, and woven into this expression, recounting the victory in the past that the Lord gave Israel over the Midianites when they were wandering in the wilderness before taking the promised land. Numbers 31 says there, you have broken, saying the Lord, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And the Israelites remembered that victory. The plunder was so massive, so massive that it made them wealthy. 
so that the benefits, the physical benefits of the light coming, growth, abundance, victory in battle, these are metaphorical of a greater spiritual reality. And in verse 6, we find how that reality comes. We find the way in which those are, have been, who have been in darkness will see light. We're told that light is revealed in a child, a son, fulfilling the promise from Scripture, one who will govern David's throne. And this is where it connects back to chapter 7, verse 14, but then pointing forward to something much greater. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, two of those titles would be absolutely impossible for a mere man to fulfill. And here's where we come back to Isaiah 7, 14, where it says there, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Yes, the, the near-term fulfillment of that prophetic word was the prophet's son, Mahar Shalal Hash Baz, chapter 8, verse 3. He was the sign that the threat from Damascus and Samaria, that that would be neutralized. But that greater fulfillment, that pointed forward to Christ. Now, just as a, a, a little bit of a detour, it, it's, we're at that time of year, and it happens as well at, as we approach Easter. You often get those scholars, those who like to question the authority of Scripture, questioning the, the virginal conception and birth of Jesus. And they point to the fact that, that in Isaiah 7.14, the, the word virgin there, Hebrew, Alma, it does not mean a woman or does not have to mean a woman who has never known a man. It could simply mean a young woman of marriageable age. And indeed, some of the prophet was born naturally. There's another question regarding Mahar Shalal Hash Baz. How could he be called Emmanuel? Again, those who like to question the authority of Scripture and bringing this up as a kind of a gotcha, but it's not. In near-term fulfillment, the son of the prophet, in his naming as Emmanuel, could simply, and I, I take it it does reveal the fact that God was with his people to rescue them. The prophet's son could not be, however, the great light. That prophetic word had to point way beyond to something much greater, a much better and perfect Emmanuel. And in his gospel, Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23, then quoting this very same verse, Isaiah 7, 14, he explains there that Mary, which is Joseph's betrothed, she will indeed be a virgin. Well, why? Because he was told in a dream. But also, Mary was told the same thing in a vision. And Mary had expressed to herself she had never known a man in the biblical sense. So I park here because the question is, if somebody should challenge it, does the virginal conception of birth and birth of Jesus matter? And I want to say this, we, we can't gloss over it like it's unimportant. You see, to be that great light, to be mighty God and everlasting Father. The Christ could not be a mere man. Could not. It's a theological necessity that Christ was conceived not 
by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. That's why we hold to this doctrine. It says it in the scriptures, but we defend it vociferously. You see, if Jesus was uh, conceived by, <clears throat> by means of Joseph, he would carry the sin inherited from the first man, Adam, right? Right through. Because the Bible says, for as in Adam all die. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And why do all die? All die because of sin. So to deny the virgin birth is to deny Jesus' divinity and therefore to deny that he was without sin. Now, I don't know if you get a lot of questions from people challenging the Christian faith. Wow. But hold on to this. It's a non-negotiable. Fulfilling verse 7 of our text, Mary was told this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Luke 1, 32, 33. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That much greater reality of Emmanuel, God with us, ultimately fulfilling the promise to King David that one of his own descendants would be the forever king, where the Lord told him, First Chronicles, I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. It's a glorious thing that the prophet is revealing in chapter 9. God with us is not only the light that overcomes the darkness of sin, but the light himself is the life. And we read this together from John chapter 1. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So whatever evil there is in the world, that darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. So Christ is your light. And that light means that we have been res rescued from a spiritual darkness. And that light means that, and I'm talking about Christ, means that we can know and trust that he is mighty. Christ, our light, means that we can know that he cares for us like a father that never fails. That Christ is our light means that we can know his counsel, that his word is wonderful. To know Christ, our light, is to know that he is the one exclusively through him. He is the one through whom peace is established. And to know Christ as our light is to know that he is king whose reign is forever. All of those things have been accomplished in Christ. So all the things that we, we look forward to in anticipation of his birth that's already happened, but the celebration around it, being reminded of these very truths that sustain us. All of these things being accomplished in Christ, the son of the living God. But the, the, the other side is true as well. See, apart from Christ, 
you cannot be at peace with God. Apart from Christ, you will never have the power to escape judgment. Apart from Christ, you will never be able to leave your sin behind. It will always have a grip on you. And apart from Christ, ultimately, you will perish. So simple exhortation this morning. Come to the light. Come to the light. Now, if, if you understand, and maybe you're not in the light, maybe you don't know Christ, maybe you're not a believer, but listen, the invitation is for you. Come to the light. If you understand that you've been walking in darkness, if you understand and know that your sin has left you in despair and spiritually destitute, you know that in your darkness that those habits, those patterns are destroying your life. Come to Christ. He is your light. Yeah, we, we, we focus at this time of year the fact that he was born in Bethlehem in humble circumstances. Yes, he was announced by angels. He was, he was recognized by local shepherds. He was, he was visited by foreign dignitaries. But the story, it doesn't stop there. And we can't leave it there. He lived righteously. He was falsely accused and well, he suffered the greatest injustice that there ever was at the hands of men. Being innocent, he was hoisted up on a Roman cross to be mocked, and ultimately he died. But in that, in that horrific act, God did something so, so wonderfully counterintuitive. God the Father, looking down from heaven, regarded that death as the full payment for your own sin and rebellion. All of it. If, and only if, you trust that he did it for you. Do you see Christ and him crucified? Do you know why he was put on the cross? Your sin separated you from God. Only his sacrifice could remedy that. Christ is light. And he displays his glory, the beauty of that light, from a Roman cross, taking the full measure of the wrath of God for your sin. He rose from the grave that he was entombed in. He did that on the third day. He proved as he rose that he had, could not be overcome by evil, that death had no power over him. And he guarantees eternal life for all who look to him in faith. Now, the prophet Isaiah wrote about him. It's over 700 years before Jesus was born. And this one prophecy that we looked at is just one of 300 that was from Genesis through Malachi that were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Let me ask you this. What more do you need to trust him? Well, first come to the light, but also live in the light. Live in the light. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a moment-by-moment -moment choice to live by the word of Christ, to always keep him in view. It's, and the word of Christ is a very great and precious promises of God, 2 Peter 1.4, that through them, through this word, 
you and I can become partakers, get this, partakers of the divine nature. The very word of Christ, living in the light, is taking up the word of Christ. It, it's, it's the armor of God that protects us. It, it helps you to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word of Christ reminds us of Christ's own mediating work. That new and living way opened up to God by Christ, giving us the confidence to draw near to God to seek from him grace and mercy to help us in a time of need. Living in the light is constantly recognizing that Christ is our mediator. When you're facing darkness in your day, when you're facing challenges, when you're facing temptation, there is a new and living way opened up by Christ in the very presence of God where you can ask for grace and mercy to help you in that time of need, whatever it is. Living in the light means that we continue to gather like this. We gather with people who collectively, oh, we don't want to put that light under a basket, but we want to put that light of Christ on a stand for all to see. So we live in the light of Christ. And finally, we shine the light. Jesus said this, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. As I was thinking about this, your light. Jesus is your light. Let him shine through you. So be ready with good words and good works that bless and serve others. Be ready with good words as an ambassador for Christ, appealing to others to be reconciled to God. Be ready with good words, ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Let's shine the light. Come to the light, live in the light, and let's shine the light. And as we keep our focus on Christ this Advent, I trust that your heart is encouraged. Because brothers and sisters here this morning, we, we are living in the light. And it's a glorious light. Well, may God apply these things to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, it's, um, it's challenging when there's so much darkness around us. Um, and it's also very tempting and sometimes it even looks good to us. It looks attractive. Father, you've called us to be set-apart people. So strengthen us to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus, to live in his light and to shine that light in all that we do. And Father, for any who are in the room or listening or watching later or listening later, Lord, I pray, save, bring those who are wandering in darkness into the glorious light of Christ and salvation in him. And in all these things, we pray that Christ may be glorified. Amen.